0: Good afternoon, universe, and welcome to Cross Defense, your weekly dose of knowing why you believe what you believe so that you'll be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks about the hope that you have in the life, suffering, death, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am your host, Reverend Jonathan Fisk, and today we begin a new journey together— as we begin an ongoing meditation on one of the greatest legacies of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, the Christlich Dogmatik of Franz Pieper, once professor at Concordia Theological Seminary, St. Louis, and the second president of the LCMS. This is the monumental life work of his Christian dogmatic series, in which he laid down for we who follow him some of the clearest defenses of the Christian faith ever developed. All founded on those marvelous Reformation principles of Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, and all of it, of course, because of Christ alone. Now, if you are wanting to follow along by reading Peeper's Dogmatics at home, uh, you can find copies of the volume easily enough at cph.org. That's Concordia Publishing House's website. But uh, what we're going to be doing is not reading the work verbatim in its entirety. We're going to be skimming over the surface. There is a bit of minutiae in there that might not be interesting to everybody. What we want to do is drink from its highlights, pulling from what some would, because of that minutiae, consider an old dusty tomb, what really is the ambrosia of solid doctrine good teaching that which st paul exhorts all christians to hunger for in his pastoral epistles when he when he says things like watch your life and doctrine closely persevere in them because if you do you will save both yourselves and your hearers and for the time is coming when people will not put up with sound doctrine but instead will turn aside to suit their own desires, gathering around them a great number of teachers to teach what their itching ears would rather hear. But, he says, you must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught and so encourage others. I have guests with us today via phone from the great faraway land of Colorado uh, pastors Brian Wolfmuller and Brian Flammy. they are uh, co-workers at Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora Colorado welcome to the show gentlemen thanks glad to be here yeah happy to be here with you it is a pleasure to have you here as well and why don't you go ahead and start off just by telling us a little bit about where Aurora Colorado is and you know what are you known for
1: Aurora is the uh, eastern suburb of Denver, so it kind of wraps around the eastern and southern side of Denver. It's just so it's simply beautiful here. We're right in the spot where the mountains transition into the plains, and uh, Aurora calls itself an all-American city. I think it's probably true, although we didn't perform so admirably in the elections in the last couple of days. But it's generally a a pretty uh, great place to be. Hope Lutheran Church has been here for sixty-three years. Uh, serving the people of Old Aurora, uh, the original city, uh, and it's fantastic. Again, it's a fantastic place to be. And how
0: long have you been there, Brian? Uh, almost 12 years for me and Flammy. I've been here about two years. Fantastic. Um getting your feet wet then, right, Flammy?
2: Yeah, that's right. Uh, I've been... Uh, pastor-toddler stage as opposed to pastor-baby stage, so that's progress. You know?
0: That's right. From what I hear, though, you're a bit of a bam-bam toddler, so we'll, we'll take it. We'll take it. <laughs> that's, right. Yeah. that's right. All right, so we're going to dig right in, and uh, Dr. Pieper does not waste any words. He opens, just going straight for the jugular, I think. The question that we're going to have with this is, why is he doing this when he's doing it? He's writing nearly a hundred years ago. He probably was doing the, the prep work hundred over a hundred years ago, but publishing within the last hundred years, and he, he comes straight out of the gun with something that you would think was a later problem he says we take the position that holy scripture in contradistinction to all other books in the world is god's own infallible word and therefore the only source and norm of christian doctrine why would somebody writing in the early 20th century even have to say that i mean isn't that
2: something that's assumed uh actually no it's never been assumed um I mean, this is one of the things that uh, strikes me when I, when I read that, was that uh, the devil's attack at every time and in every place, in fact, uh, from the very uh, opening days of this world in paradise, has always been to cause us to doubt God's word. Um, he asks Eve in Genesis 3, 1, did God actually say these things? Uh, and so uh, this has continued to be the same attack, you know. Uh, uh, in the Holy Scriptures, it's just filled with examples of uh, the false prophets uh, Jesus warns us uh, to, to watch out for false prophets, people who draw us away from the word of God uh, to the point where every error, every sin is, in fact, uh, an attack on God's word. And so Francis Pieper makes, uh, uh, he, like you said, he comes right out, goes for the jugular and says that scripture alone is the source and norm of Christian doctrine. Just so we're clear, we're not mixing man's words with God's words. In fact, we're letting God speak here. Because
0: if we, if we try to have a conversation about what God is thinking, but we don't have a common rule, a common source and norm, we, we end up just kind of talking with the wind, right?
1: That's exactly—in fact, the wind is a great word to bring in here. But Jesus says—remember the, the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, um, uh, those who hear my words and keep it are like the ones that build their house on a rock. Uh, and the winds come, the rains fall, but the house stands— uh, the person who hears the Lord's word but doesn't uh, keep them is like the one that builds their house on the sand and the wind and the rains come and the house falls. And Jesus ends this his sermon with this kind of, uh, you know, it's it's kind of a tragic echo. And great is the fall. I mean, you can imagine it. So here's people beginning to build this this home of, of this dogmatic. And so he's going to lay down the foundation and say, what is the foundation on which we can build with which we can withstand the. The, the waves and the winds of time and the foundation will be the scriptures that will be the solid rock on which we build. And um and because we're building on that rock, um, it, we we can resist all of the temptations of time, all the devil's work. To come and draw us away from the Lord's truth. Peter knows that it's in the Lord's truth that we find life and hope and salvation. So we have to establish this uh, so that it ca- so that it can resist all the atal- all the assaults and all the attacks that the devil would bring against it.
0: Now, it's in, he's, he uses a big fancy word here: contradistinction. He just means against, right? In contradistinction, against all other books in the world, those seem like fighting words. I mean, in this day and age, when there are so many religions that are out there and they're all trying to find God I mean how, how can we really come along and say that none of the other books in the world have any real uh, final authority to speak about God in them or who are we to come up with this idea
2: right I mean it is against all of the things that are asserted by the other religions in the world and get this also uh he includes in that list all the things that the Lutherans would ever write ah, that, that is great underneath the source and the norm of Christian doctrine which is God's word the holy scriptures
0: now let's define those terms. Uh, I mean, source. I think most people get like the river has a source where the water all flows from. But this this phrase norm. I mean, it makes me think of a a TV show about a bar in Boston in the in the nineteen eighties, right? Uh, what, what does this mean? The norm of Christian doctrine.
1: Well, the source is really great because it, it harkens back to like the introduction to the formula of Concord where the scriptures are called the the pure, clear fountain of Israel. So the picture there is like a, it's like the stream where the where the where the river is coming up out of the ground. And that's where the water is most pure. It's untainted. And so the scriptures are that. Uh, so it's the source, but it's also the norm. In other words, it's also the bank through which the river runs. It's the thing that uh, defines the the edges uh, and and give shape uh, to the to, to to Christian doctrine. So so the norm is the is the thing that you use to measure uh, any other statement. Uh, apparently, somewhere in the world, there's like a. A one meter thing somewhere, like hanging on probably on some wall in Switzerland, there's like a length or a bar that says, This is one meter. And that's the, and whenever you want to build a meter stick or a yardstick, you got to go to that one particular thing, which becomes the norm. Well, whenever it comes to doctrine, that's what the scripture is. If you want to know if the thing is true or not, then you take it to the scriptures and say, Is it true according to what God says here or not?
0: Let me tell you, I want to be the guy that has the copyright on that meter. That's got to be a a total bankroll, right? So, but norm is the root of the word normal as well, right? So, if you're going to be a normal, and then the fancy word for that is orthodox Christian, uh, one who has what Christianity really is, you've got to have its its norm forming normality, and that is what we are saying that the the Prophets and the apostles of Jesus Christ wrote down for us that all things should be judged by them. But Pieper goes on to say, Prevailing conditions in the church make it necessary for the author of a treatise on Christian dogmatics to state clearly and emphatically where he stands on the question of the source and the nature of Christian theology. I mean, Pieper is not writing for non-Christians. He's writing for Christians, and again, isn't this odd? A hundred years ago, at the the peak of the Christian century, as they were even calling it in those days, at the heart of Christian America, he has to write a book on Christian dogmatics and say, just so you all know, right here at the start, I'm going to use the Bible.
2: Shouldn't that shock us? (laughs) Well, I think, yeah, it, it, it should shock us for those of us who grew up in a Christian home who've gone to Christian churches where the scriptures are held up as uh, the source and, as we were saying, the norm of Christian life. Uh, But for theologians uh, who spend a lot of time in university, uh, who spend a lot of time asking critical questions, uh, the devil finds opportunity uh, to say, well, what about the scripture and what I've learned about logic? Or what about scripture and what I've learned from my philosophy class? Or what about scripture and sort of uh, my powers of of criticism, you know? Uh, This was actually part of the, uh, the theological climate at the time when Pieper is writing. So much so that Pieper sees himself not as within the mainstream by any stretch, but outside of the mainstream and saying that, hey guys, just like the little kid, uh, at home and in church, I'm going to trust in the scriptures to teach me what uh, Christian teaching is and uh, and uh, how we should stay within those bounds. So he
0: says that the theologians of modern Protestantism, Protestantism, with but few exceptions, deny that Holy Scripture is by inspiration the very word of God. Protestantism is a big word. I want to come back to that in a moment, but ha- has anything changed in this, uh, Pastor Wolfmuller? Do you, do you do you think that the evangelical fundamentalist world out there is any different than their Protestant forebears at this point?
1: I mean, it, it might have changed only by getting worse, but I mean, it hasn't. It definitely hasn't gotten better. Uh, you you see, I mean, the easy thing to go after here, and people are going after it, is the liberals. They're always. You know, there's always danger on both sides in the church. And, you know, the original Reformation, you had the twin evils of Rome on one side and the Anabaptist on the other. It's just a generation later or two maybe that the that the twin evils that the Lutheran church is fighting is liberalism on the one hand, the Enlightenment theologians, and pietism on the other hand. They really are, in fact, manifestations of the same phenomenon of rejecting the scriptures. and And we have that too nowadays. We have on the one hand the liberal churches— um, uh, that that would simply outli- outright reject the verbal inspiration of the Scripture. They might say that the Bible contains God's Word, but they would never be able to say that the Bible is God's Word. And that seems to me to be the first people that Pieper is targeting with this, those liberal theologians who would reject the fact of the the, the equation of Scripture and God's Word. They would tear that apart. But you see it on the evangelical side as well. It's a little bit more subtle because the, you know, our friends, the Baptists and the big box churches, they would say they believe in the infallibility and inerrancy of the scripture. But when it really comes down to hearing a word from God, they're not looking for the word of God in the scriptures, but the individual word of God that he reveals directly to me. So trying to sort out what's God's will for my life or what what does God really think about me or am I even saved? They don't they're not looking to the scriptures to hear God speak, but rather they're looking inside to the chamber of their own heart. And so that 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 is also a, a here in Peeper's criticism. It's right. a move away from the clarity of the scripture.
2: Yeah, later on, you'll talk about the regenerate eye as uh, uh, you know, scripture is interpreted by the regenerate eye. And I think that's sort of like uh, what Pastor wolfbieler was talking about uh, with regard to the Baptists and, and other American evangelicals.
0: Right, the, the, the idea that now that I'm a Christian, I've got some sort of inside and direct line to God by which I bypass the scriptures and I can find out what God really thinks. What I what I find so fascinating about this historical question, what's going on, is it, is it different now, is that the old Protestant world, which we now maybe would call the mainline church bodies, these are the big kind of American church bodies, they were, at this time period, becoming liberal. That is, they were drifting from Scripture as their norm, as their primary principle. And evangelicalism as a movement exists as a, a fight back and then flight from those church bodies so that the fundamentalists came out of of these church bodies and form their own new church bodies to establish the fundamental principles of which the the trustworthiness, the inerrancy of scripture is one of them. And yet, if you were to visit then your average evangelical, often now just called community church on the street, uh, you might find scripture pulled out from time to time these days. But if you were to confront them with an issue of, say, false doctrine— and you were to give them a bit of scripture to deal with it, you'd be very likely dismissed as being argumentative, uh, rigid, uh, or even trying to dampen the spirit in some way. And so it's all come to a to a full circle in a very, very sad way. This isn't a reason to rejoice. Lutherans aren't better than evangelicals. Oh, this is a reason to be scared for the life of the church in America, which by distraction has really begun to believe that question, Pastor Fleming, you brought up, did God really say and so loose itself from the confidence that we have in Christ in the scriptures got a comment yeah, the, on that the evangelical
1: takes as its kind of key thing not that the bible is theological but that the bible is instructive it's a it's a manual for uh, it's basically law and and what that means is as soon as you move away from from the gospel, you move away from conversations about doctrine, dogma, orthodoxy, right teaching, and you are uh, almost become obsessed with questions of right living. Uh, so, so, in, so you have these cliches like it's it's all about deeds, not creeds. Uh, any sort of theological discussion is rejected as you know arguing about traditions of men, and that makes the church. Uh, it it destroys the theological immune system of a church. So that it becomes impossible to reject, um, uh, the the liberalizing move that they're re, that they're trying to reject. So you you're seeing it now. It's been the last ten years that evangelical churches are becoming uh, more and more theologically and socially liberal all the time. You had open view theism working to the Baptist church. You have um, basically the kind of um, uh, ecological social justice stuff working its way into the evangelical churches, especially with the emergent church and the idea of, um, uh, you know, the kind of mocking idea of uh, having a dogmatic orthodoxy. And I, I think it's it it'll be before our generation is finished that that will that the evangelical church will almost be completely uh liberalized and there will have to be another move another conservative uh kind of move towards um fundamentalism in the in the evangelical church to make it survive
0: yeah, why the, why this always hurts my heart is knowing that there are there are many Christians in these movements, right These are not people who are apart from Christ at least not at the moment, but they're being fed a steady diet of of slow working poison and it doesn't poison them by making them into worse sinners necessarily. What it does is it poisons them by removing very slowly the amount of antidote, of the gospel of Jesus Christ from their diet so that eventually they come to believe in a christianity that that almost is is crossless and in that way is forgiveness Less. That is, they're not regularly hearing about how it's not up to them to earn the approval of God. Rather, as we mentioned earlier, they're off seeking for God's approval in everything except for what Scripture says. Now, I want to I want to define this word Protestantism because I know there's going to be some some good, solid Lutheran listeners out there that say, wait a minute, wait a minute. How can the the, the doctor of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, Francis Pieper, refer to Protestantism as something that doesn't include himself? Are aren't Lutherans the same thing as
2: Protestantism? Protestants? Well, he talks about the representative theologians of modern Protestantism, uh, uh which means that, uh, those people that the world would go to, to ask questions of the Protestants, right? And of those folks, he certainly does not, uh, see himself as identified with them, uh, because these are the folks who, uh, uh, who stick to the scriptures only through a filter, right? That have to go through the human ego, the Christian consciousness, the regenerate eye, uh, And of course, you know, Protestantism is a historical term, um, and it is an inclusive term for all of these uh, various churches that uh, broke off of the Church of Rome or were kicked out. Uh, And of course, the Lutherans have never seen ourselves as part of like a, a church that's bound together with churches of different confessions which, you know, if you were to uh, compare the uh, historic Reformed Church to the Luther Church, they've always said different things concerning the person, the work of Jesus, uh, the nature of the sacraments, and so on and so forth. And that's really where Peter sees himself, not as a part of a, a mass movement away from the Church of Rome, but rather a part of a group of uh, faithful Christians who hear the scriptures and who confess those scriptures. That's all he's uh, interested in identifying himself and this dogmatics with is with uh, faithfully hearing and uh, the, the, the teachings of Scripture and also regurgitating them in a way that is good and edifying for our instruction. Lutheranism stands in what uh, Hermann Sasse, a great German theologian, called the lonely
0: way, and it's standing between Protestantism and Catholicism, and it's not as if we're entirely divided from either one of them. The problem is, is that we have one foot in each door. Particularly, we share with the Roman Catholic Church a trust in the sacramental presence of Jesus Christ in in baptism and in the Lord's Supper, which the Protestant world straight up rejects. And yet we do share, at least with the, the historical movement of Protestantism, the protest against Rome that they've rejected the very thing we're talking about which is the value of scripture alone as establishing what we believe God says which brings me back to Brian you uh, Wolfmiller you had mentioned this word theological earlier and it's a word I think a lot of people know what it means but it's one of those that like it, it would help to break it down a little bit what what is theology what what does theological even mean yeah it's two it comes from two
1: greek words theos and logos and logos we you know normally translate word my favorite translation is receipt, you know, writing, a uh, little uh, thing written down. But we, it comes into our English especially as the study of a thing. And so um, theology is really the study of God, uh, the person and work of God. And and that's what uh, – uh, it's, it's going to be important as people in the pages to come is going to emphasize this, that, look, our attention now uh, in this whole thing uh, is given to God. That's what the um, – Uh, the theologian's mind, the theologian's words are about. And the important thing is to know, to be able to say anything about God, uh, he first has to say those things about himself, which brings us right back to what we're talking about. In other words, if we're going to engage in any sort of theological task, the last thing we want to do is just start making stuff up or poking around to see what we see. But rather, the task of the theologian is first to listen. To listen to what God says about Himself, and then to faithfully uh, say those same things and defend uh, anything that would come into contradiction with it. So theology is, in its basic thing, is simply to to speak uh, and to study and to consider the things of God.
0: Yeah, theos and logos, and, and if there's a Greek word that that many Christians would know. It would be that word logos because you hear it so regularly, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And, and I know I've heard many pastors actually then do bring the logos into their sermons as well. And theos as well uh, is, is a word that does kind of work its way around. I like to translate that as a uh, knower of God or knowledge of God. So how do we even have words of God or why do we have words of God is that we might know him. And if you want to have, as, as many Christians would say, a relationship with God, it has to be with the real God. I can't have a relationship with my wife if I don't have words from her about her. Right, that's how we get to know each other and meet each other. And so, what I'm going to be doing in some of the the further translations as we go is I'm going to be replacing the word theologian with the word and the word theology with the words knowledge of God and knowers of God because I think it helps us kind of hear what people are really getting at. That this isn't just about having the wrong stuff in a book somewhere. This is about losing the actual identity of God and replacing it with another identity that is not God, which would be, if we're careful with our theology, the breaking of the second commandment. Uh, what do you say, Pastor Fellini?
2: Uh Yeah, um, I, I think that's right. So, there, to, to be a theologian, or a hearer of God, and a knower of God, uh, that this is premised not on sort of imagining, huh, if, if there is a God, what would God say? You know, it's not a thought experiment. That, in fact, uh, uh, God creates through his word, uh, he teaches us through his word, and uh, he gives us the holy scriptures, which are his word. And so the the theologian or the hearer of God is somebody who receives baptism, you know, the promise that through this water uh, uh, and my word you are saved, you know. The theologian is somebody who hears this instruction and learns to say amen, you know, against their flesh, who would uh, put words into God's mouth, you know. Yeah, so that's 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 wonderful. I think that's great. So Pieper
0: then says the theologians of modern Protestantism, that is, those who would claim to know God, refuse to regard Holy Scripture as the sole source and standard of theology of the knowledge of God. So he's, he's really, again, he's, these are fighting words. He's throwing an opening punch at the entire Americanized church and saying, you're running around professing to know God while rejecting the only way to know God. And this is why it's so important to establish any time we're going to give a hope, for the a defense for the hope that lies within us as Christians, we've got to be able to do it with a foundation that's bigger than ourselves. It's got to be more than my opinion. It's got to be more than my experiences and feelings. It's got to be more than what my pastor said to me recently or maybe even my entire life long. It has to be established by the words of Jesus himself. And the place that we find that, the place that those words also point us to is his holy scriptures, these writings from his center ones, his apostles, and also his confession of the ancient Hebrew scriptures that David was inspired, uh, that the prophets of old and, and Moses were speaking for God. That is where we're going to go. If you want to have a relationship with God that isn't founded upon the blowing breezes of the wind and the ever-changing climates of, of uh, human culture, which are always undergirded by this same awful question. You might think God said that, but did he really? And then if, if it is, did he really? The question is, how do you know? Uh, we'll be back in just a few minutes here at KFUO with Cross Defense to continue talking with Pastor Brian Wolfmuller and Pastor Brian Flammy about how to defend your faith with Sound doctrine.
1: Providing solid confessional Lutheran resources for pastors around the world, that's Luther Academy. Logia, the Journal of Lutheran Theology, the 13 volume confessional Lutheran dogmatic series, and global conferences for strengthening pastors, that's Luther Academy. Sign up for our email news and support our efforts at Lutheracademy.com or call us at 260 452 2211. Does your church need help to discover its true mission? Hi, this is Rich Robertson, President and CEO of the Lutheran Church Extension Fund. It happens to all of us. At some point in our lives, we get distracted, confused, or maybe even burned out, and eventually we lose focus. So it's nice to know at times like these that you have a partner at LCEF. Our ministry support services can help your church clarify its mission so it enjoys sustained health and growth. Learn more at www.lcef.org.
0: Recently graduated from high school or college and looking for a chance to serve a community in need while sharing the good news of Jesus Christ? Lutheran Young Adult Corps may be for you. Lutheran Young Adult Corps provides opportunities for long-term, full-time service for 10 weeks through the summer or 10 months over the school year in places like St. Louis, Philadelphia, and Boston. Find out more about Lutheran Young Adult Corps by finding us online at lcms.org slash Y-A-C-O-R-P-S or on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Lutheran YACor. President Gerald Ford, the only U.S. president never elected vice president or president, led America in the turbulent aftermath of Watergate from 1974 to 1977.
1: On July 4th, 1976, as America celebrated its 200th anniversary, President Ford's speech reflected on the history, but also the future of the United States. He compared the bicentennial celebration with the Jubilee year as the land of promise mentioned in Leviticus. Standing in front of the Liberty Bell, he read its inscription from Leviticus 25.10. Proclaimed liberty throughout all the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. He explained, Every 50th year, the Jubilee restored the land and the equality of persons that prevailed when the children of Israel entered the land of promise. Both gifts came from God.
0: Brought to you by Museum of the Bible.
1: The messenger of good news. Listener supported. Worldwide KFUO.
0: we are back at Cross Defense, helping you defend your faith with the solid truth of doctrine drawn fra- straight from the scriptures, and we are getting this discussion going with some quotes from Dr. Francis Pieper's Christian Dogmatics, a classic text drawing from the scriptures, who God is, what he's done in our Lord Jesus Christ, and how we can same-say, we can speak again that theology, that knowledge of God. I have with me my guests, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller and Pastor Brian Flammy, both from Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado, and we're going to dig right back in with a quote from Pieper in which he he continues this thought but he really narrows it down he boils it down to to one terrifying idea that a mass movement away from holy scripture has set in and you can say that he means in the churches and it's it's normal for us as americans to assume he's just talking about us but it's it's bigger than that
2: even isn't it pastor flammey yeah, that's right. Uh, so Francis Pieper is certainly writing for uh, a context here in the United States, but he also uh, recently uh, is uh, uh, sort of a neighbor here in the United States. You know, confessional Lutheranism isn't something that traces a long history back in the United States. We have pockets of it here and there. But for the Missourians, the Saxons who came up through the Mississippi, they remember the 19th century in Germany, which was under sort of the, the tyranny, huh, the theological tyranny of a guy named uh, Friedrich Schleiermacher. Uh, who was all about uh, stepping away from the scriptures flying away from the scriptures and instead wanted to redefine christian terms in uh, uh according to what we might call today psychological language you know and so the christian community is a is a community that's bound together in sort of a mutual uh mutual faith uh, uh, Faith, you know, they have they all everybody in this community has sort of a similar feeling of dependence upon something greater than themselves. Here we have the language of experience uh, really taking life in the 19th century, uh, 19th century German theology. And the more they dwell on their sort of uh, religious experience as big sort of that which fundamentally makes a person religious. Uh, the more they're actually wandering away from the, from the scriptures and the Bible and what the Bible says objectively. Francis Pieper sees this and he says, no, we refuse to go down this, this trend that was started in, in just a few generations before me. And instead, we are going to fly back to the words of Jesus, you know, his prophets and apostles and evangelists. Schleiermacher
0: is a name that maybe not everyone needs to remember, but his story is certainly worth remembering. And what, what always gets me about his story is how he really didn't mean to be a bad guy. He wasn't trying to destroy Western Christianity and Western Protestantism. He was trying to save it. And it's this age of reason, this age of enlightenment, which everyone's realizing we can borrow from the Greeks and we can learn to think in a straight line, which really isn't a bad idea. I mean, I don't mind that myself. But as they're doing this, they're beginning to question some of the statements of the scriptures. I don't know if they were quite at six day creation yet, but they were beginning to question the miraculous nature of a variety of events and, and saying, well, can we really trust everything the Scriptures say, and Schleiermacher was trying to save us from losing Christianity altogether. Because he he began to see then the Scriptures and their possible error was the real threat, and so he moves us towards trusting our experience of God, the, the 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 relational knowledge of God, and really what we said earlier that relationship with God that now is kind of the norm in American Christianity. He begins to move to that as a way to defend the Christian faith against the the loss of the Christian faith by losing the scriptures as well. It's almost as if God and his word no longer was there to justify us, but suddenly he finds himself having to justify God. But in doing this, he removes from the center of Christianity that, that massive and important justification by grace alone, through faith alone, that the scriptures alone teach. And so it created in Protestantism, a new movement, as it were. And his next quote says this. He says, This away-from-scripture movement has created a situation in Protestantism which has a counterpart in Romanism. So here's Peeper, you know, he's really up on his high horse, isn't he? Thinks pretty highly of himself that the whole Protestant world is wrong and the whole <laughs> Roman Catholic world is wrong. And here he is in, in little uh, little Missouri uh, telling us uh, why he's right. But uh, Pastor Wolfmuller, I mean, isn't it true that what has happened, strangely, is that the reason for the Reformation has been reversed by this movement away from Scripture?
1: Yeah, turned on its head is what Peeper will say. And it's true because, see, the Protestants would like to, to lay claim to the sola of the reformation scripture alone and you see this in all the you know the baptist churches and the in the big box american evangelical churches even in the mainline churches they 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 all lay claim to sola scriptura and they can look at the catholic church and say look the catholic church doesn't have sola scriptura it says that the authority is the church and the tradition and the pope which really boils down to the pope Uh, that's the authority of the church. And, and the Protestants would say, no, we, we are better than that. We have the scripture as our source. And, and Pieper here says, you do not, you don't have a Pope, but you have your own ego. You have your own experience. You have your own theologizing self. Uh, You have, um, you've replaced the Pope with your own, uh, sense of reason or your own spirituality And you have ended up in the same place that the Catholic Church ended up with, which is a denial or a loss of the authority of the
0: Scripture. And you have— It's it's the Lutherans alone that are laying claim to this sola, this sola scriptura. You have a million popes, right? Uh, Before, it was one man claiming to have authority over Scripture, and and now we have many. And uh, I I remember, again, from uh, Herman Sassa— a moment in which he is lamenting. He, this is a man here, and another fascinating story. He is a German theologian who was living under the regime of the Nazis. Many people know the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer because of his work to fight against the Nazis. Sasa also fought against them by basically calling them out almost constantly and trying to stop something that they called the German Christian Movement. This was a, a literally a Nazi infiltration of the church to take over its infrastructure and, and begin preaching propaganda from the pulpit. Uh, was very clear in speaking out against this and with what came with it, uh, the loss of scripture at, at the center of, of their doctrine. And he said at this point, which just blew me away when I first read this as a, as a young pastor. He said, it's a sad day now that we have to call the Roman Catholic Church the defender of sola scriptura in Europe. Yeah, because if you look to the, the 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 confessions, the catechism of the Roman Catholic Church, they do at least still go to Scripture. They do at least still say scripture has a truth and a meaning. Yeah, we interpret it, we tell you what to think, but but we believe it means something. And what was happening yeah. via Schleiermacher and then you know Hitler just got rid of it altogether, but we're seeing it now again in this mysticism of American culture. You're seeing that we have the scriptures don't even exist at all for us in a very real
2: way. Yeah, that's right. I mean, so we were talking about this a little bit earlier, Pastor Wolfbuehler and I, uh, how the temptation for us as as Protestants in, in the 20th and 21st centuries is to read a verse of the Holy Scriptures and then to put a question mark at the end of that verse, you know, and and, and to say, well, does this apply to me? Is this true? Uh, um, and and, uh, and in fact, in, in, you know, having this, uh, this, as you were talking about, this mystical sort of approach to the Holy Scriptures uh, we lose it. Uh, we lose its comfort uh, that is only that it only has by virtue of it, the authority that it's actually the inspired word of God. Uh, for the Roman Catholics, it's a similar error. Uh, Pastor Wolf Mueller put it well: <laughs> where that uh, at the end of every verse of the Holy Scriptures, instead of it's a different question mark. It, there's a question mark, and it says right after that in parentheses: "See the Pope <laughs> and see what he says about it." Uh, but you know, uh, which I I don't think is really at all any any different instead of just getting one sort of source of interpretation. uh, With the Protestants you have many, but with the Pope you have one. Uh, For the the Lutherans, what we believe concerning the Holy Scriptures, and is certainly here for Francis Pieper, instead of letting uh, the verse of Holy Scripture have a question mark at the end of it, he lets it stand. Uh, And in fact, uh, as an amen, he'll put an exclamation mark at the end of the verse, you know. Uh, And, uh, yeah.
0: Yeah, it's like, it's like the American churches have begun to treat the scriptures as a, as a book of magic. Uh, Is it's a bit of a, a grimoire, right? This this thing you would go to, this relic that you would go to for a spiritual power. I, I know there's this interesting practice that uh, many Roman Catholics have of burying I believe it's a statue of Saint Joseph under the foundations of their house as a way of trying to establish a certainty of, of health and wellness in that home and I think most Protestants would have a big problem with that and yet I've also seen where Protestant builders are now willing to do that and they'll put the Bible uh, underneath the foundation of your house so your home can be founded on the scriptures and yet what are we doing with the Bible there we're not we're not we're not reading it uh, hopefully maybe they are in the home but you're treating the Bible like it's this like it's this relic, this magic book, which is exactly what the problem was in the medieval age. People were looking for God so hard that they they would look anywhere for him except in the words of Scripture. What's profound now is that we've actually taken the words of Scripture and turned them into the thing we'll look at without reading them, right? And without without taking them in their context as a sentence and a paragraph and a letter and as a, a total message that hinges together to give us what God wants us to know theology about himself that we might, again, this all comes back to the conscience and the confidence that we have at the heart of this thing is the death and resurrection of Jesus for us.
1: Yeah. That's what's lost. I mean, really as soon as, and, and and it makes sense because, as the devil attacks the scripture, and he does it from every different direction, you know, you have the uh, you have the attack of the liberal theologians, you have the attack of the of the pietists, which would see the scriptures as simply a rule book. You have the attack of the Pope, which says that it has to be authorized by him before it's true. you have you have the attack, you know the devil is the master of a thousand arts. And so the devil will attack the scriptures from every different side. But the point of all of it is that we would lose the clarity of what the Lord says in the scriptures. We would lose the assertions of scriptures uh the things that the lord says are true the things that the lord says that are true about us especially about our sin and the things that the lord says are true about his son and his death and resurrection and the benefit that we have from that so all of the attack on the on the formal principle on the on the norm of theology on the on the truthfulness of the lord's words all of this is for the reason of attacking the gospel The confidence that we have in Christ. Because if God can't be trusted when he says one thing, then he can't be trusted when he says, I love you. I forgive you your sins. You will not die, but live.
0: If we can't trust that there was a man named Adam who died and brought death, why should we trust that there's a man named Jesus who rose and brought life? right? Uh, why, why would one be true and not the other? We could really go on a bit of a tangent here too if we wanted to on the, the the rebuttal point that I think you would find from many people on the street today, which is, well, sure, you know God God said something in this book, but it was written by men and men make mistakes and and then maybe even more, you're a human being. And you're not infallible. You're not without error. So how do you know that you're not just misreading this? Uh, How do you know that this isn't just your interpretation?
2: Yeah, that's right. I mean, this is uh, sort of like how people are taught to treat texts nowadays, Uh, that uh, uh, there's nothing truly objective. But rather, we're taught to treat texts as uh, uh, as sort of the starting of uh, the starting point of meaning. You know, I mean, people don't sometimes if you have postmodern literature classes in college, you get this sort of uh, formally. But this stuff is bleeding in the uh, uh, bleeding through everything else in culture and in TV and in books that we read. Uh, uh, But that is not actually how people have have seen and have read texts in the past. That the reason why the word that I speak is committed into something that's written down is so that there could be no question as to what I actually said, you know. And so uh, uh, Martin Chemnitz, one of our, uh, our, our uh, Lutheran fathers, uh, who is a sort of second generation reformer after uh, Luther had an instrumental uh, hand in the, you know, the compilation of the formula of Concord and the book of Concord. Uh, he said that so that there would be no reason to doubt uh, what God has spoken to the Adam and to the patriarchs, uh, the, uh, the Lord commanded Moses to write down uh, the Holy Scriptures, you know, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, so that when Israel had a question about, well, did God really say this, uh, then for Israel, uh, it was enough to see that, yes, he did say this about uh, the seed who would crush, you know, the devil's head. It's right here in Genesis 3.15. Uh, it was given for the sake of their certainty. Uh, not not as something for which that, uh, you know, the Lord intended for them to read and interpret and to be fine with uh, any million different uh, interpretations that might exist for it. Rather, the Lord uh, said it for uh, before them for the sake of uh, a singular faith, a singular faith in this seed who is Jesus, who died on the cross to crush the devil's head.
0: Where well, this really hits the ground in my experience in the parish would be that whenever I would I would confront a, a member, usually not like privately, this would be like in a Bible study, and, and, and a member has a problem, a, a struggle with something that I'm saying Scripture says, or something that I'm saying that our confessions repeat from Scripture or that our, our dogmaticians have, have told us to go and look for in the Scriptures because we'll find it there, the automatic response to argue back is always founded on something other than but the scriptures also say this. It was usually hmm. along the lines of some sort of cliche or, or or common quote from culture, or perhaps along the lines of some sort of reasonable or what Paul calls in Colossians plausible arguments. I, I've heard it said to me, things like, but doesn't God want us to be happy? Like that would be the argument against the theology of the cross, that there is suffering in the Christian life and that we can't avoid it. We should expect it. But, but does, doesn't God want us to be happy? And aside from just being able to say, you know, no, I mean, you can stand there and say, no, he wants us to die and rise again in Christ and find joy in eternity. The real issue there is not how you can defend yourself or or others against that false claim. It's that the claim wasn't even bothering to quote scripture to prove itself. Uh, we've come so far from this as our practice now, as our norm. As And these, I'm not talking about bad people. I'm not talking about enemies of the church. I'm talking about well-meaning Christians of good spirit. Who, when they want to make an argument, don't fall first upon Scripture because, for, for whatever reason, we've forgotten to. What do you think about that, Pastor Wolfmuller?
1: Uh, you know, I hear th- this uh, cliche all the time: is people say, "Well, I'm I'm spiritual but not religious." Now, this is outside the church, mostly. I would hope this is outside the church. I've heard it inside but
2: the with, church.
1: It's a it's a it's a horrible sort of thing to say because what, you know, I think that what people are saying is, if I, I if I'm spiritual but not religious, that means that. Um, I believe that there's, uh, I believe there's a God or a higher power, but I don't believe that he, that he actually ever says anything. It's this desire for a mute God, for a God that doesn't talk, because whenever God starts to talk, it becomes uncomfortable for us. I mean, especially when he starts to speak the law, that that's condemning us. It's showing us our own sin. Our holiness is revealed. This happens over and over in the scriptures. When the Lord opens his mouth, the people shudder. They fall on their face. When God gave the Ten Commandments, the people uh, were so afraid that they said, Moses, you go talk to God and don't let God talk to us anymore. And God, uh, in fact, obliged that. He never again addresses the entire company of Israel. Uh, all through the first five books of the Bible. Now, this is uh, the the thing that is is frightful for us. I mean, God says really clearly things like, you shall not commit adultery but our, our sinful heart wants to go and commit adultery. So if I can somehow mute that word of God so that it ceases to condemn me and, and, and afflict me in my conscience, well, then I'm going to, my flesh is going to take every occasion to do that. And what we realize then is that this is less an intellectual battle most of the time and more a battle of the conscience. When, I'm, when the devil gives me an out to escape God's word, my flesh is going to take it because I'm a sinner. Uh, And and we see that uh, really as the foundation of every theology from the very beginning, Uh, even from Adam and Eve. You know, they're taking the out that the devil puts before them so they can escape the condemning word of God.
0: It is the wide path that leads to destruction, as as our Lord himself said. That means it's the easy path. It's the safe path. Path, or or it seems to be until you reach its end. Uh, you began that that comment there with talking about spiritual but not religious. I don't remember who taught me this, but I'm, I'm ever thankful for the for the gentleman who who gave me this idea that when they say that, what they're getting at is not that they're not people with a religion, and not that you don't have spirituality, but they've they've reformatted those words to mean a very specific kind of religion or spirituality. So that by spiritual they mean I have a religion. That's just mine. It's private. It only belongs to me. And so therefore, nobody has any ability to tell me that it is right or wrong. Whereas you, with your religion, have a spirituality that is public it is shared more than one person has it and therefore it has a norm it has an overarching structure to it that you don't get to decide what it is or what it isn't you're told what it is which is why sometimes they'll they'll throw in that religion is closed-minded right because it's an overarching structure that tells you what to think so when a person is saying i'm spiritual but not religious what they're saying is in my religion i answer to nobody but me And that's what, interestingly, Pieper says at the next quote, Pieper says this with the next quote, Brian, and then I'll throw it to you. Uh, Modern Protestants do the same thing when they refuse to determine Christian doctrine from Holy Writ and make the pious self-consciousness of the Christian the source and norm of the knowledge of God. That's to be spiritual, but not religious.
2: Right. That's exactly right. Uh, I I have not actually put that together before. Uh, I I'm always at a loss, I guess, with normal people and what they say about spiritual things. So when they say, hey, I'm spiritual, but uh, not religious, I just sort of assume, oh, that means that you don't like to go to the divine service. I don't. It's hard for me to understand what they mean by that. Uh, But look, uh, this is what uh, uh, Francis Pieper was able to identify. And also what this wise fellow told you, Pastor Fisk, that the human ego uh, is now becoming the norm of theology, that theology uh, is really a private affair uh, that whatever counts as the word of God has to go through me first. And, uh, and, and anything that is, is really, truly religious is a, a private affair. Uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's a great point. And I'm glad that, uh, Pieper is able to point that out for us so clearly here.
0: What's amazing is, what's amazing is he's doing this a hundred years ago. This isn't new. Yeah. People want to think spiritual but not religious as some kind of new movement. This isn't new at all. This is old German liberalism from across the water at the turn of the 20th century. It's unbelievable. He says, modern Protestants accept only so much of scripture as the individual subject has found acceptable. That's when they say today, that's just your interpretation. That's when they say today is true for me, but not for you. And what's true for you is not true for me. It's, it's so old. It's not new thinking. It's not clever. It's not wise. It, it hasn't come out of nowhere. It is old, boring. White man, you know, get me white man religion from the continent. Oh man, it's terrible stuff. Now save me from that comment, though, Pastor Wolf Mueller.
1: (laughs) No, you're right. You're right. No saving you from that. But I mean, you know, this to reduce everything down to opinion is to we we. It's a way of insulating ourselves. So to to have the spiritual picture, if we were just to back up and ask this question, okay, here I am a sinner. I know I'm a sinner because I'm dying. I know I'm a sinner because I just see my own failures. Okay, now uh, so I know something about my own sin. I don't know it completely, but I I know that everybody makes mistakes. And then if, and then just say that now God is going to come and talk to you. What do you expect that that conversation would be? If God were to say something, do you think that when God comes to talk to a sinner, that the things that he says are going to, oh, exactly agree with the things that I already thought? Or do you think that if God is going to talk to us, that he's going to say something different? He's going to tell us something that we don't know and that we don't want to hear. Now that just to just to ask and imagine what the situation would be like it would be it's it's so fantastically obvious that if God is going to be talking to us he's going to first of all say things that we don't know and second of all thing say things that we don't want to know so when we find in the scriptures that things that are uncomfortable for us we want to push back against that but this is the problem that's what we would expect to find uh, when God's talking now, the the great thing for us is that this isn't the only thing that God says. He yeah. says, "Hey, you're a sinner, but you 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 know, you know what? I love sinners. I've died for sinners. I've become a human being, and so that I could take all of your, I could bear all of your sin for you and give you the gift of life." But that first speaking of God, where He says things to us that we don't want to hear, that we that we don't want to uh, recognize to be true, um, if we can insulate ourselves. By this pious or super intellectual mechanism, and distance us ourselves from it, then we think that we've now we've become safe from the accusing voice of God, and that's what all of these theologies are doing. They're insulating the the sinner from hearing the truth about God and about themselves by saying, "Oh, well, that's just your opinion, uh, and so I don't need to listen to it."
0: I used to be uh, confused bothered by the fact that that great Bible verse from 2 Timothy 3.16, that they they drilled into my memory in the Lutheran day school, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, has reproof and correction in there, it actually says it twice. I could never figure out, you know, the teaching, okay, that's doctrine. And the training in righteousness, that's training in, in faith in Christ as our Savior. So why does it have the law word in there twice for reproof and for rebuke? But it really comes back to, like, that's the part we don't want to hear. So so he's got to say it twice. He's got to say it over and over again. And then I began to, to ask myself, is when I go to the scriptures, do I go there to be told that I'm wrong Do I go there with a heart that is assuming, assuming that sometime in the last day, the last week, I have found falseness in me and I need to be corrected? Do I go to church, not just to stand there in front of the confession of my sins, but because I know I need to be rebuked for it and being rebuked, I get to be forgiven for it? Right? And that scripture, if we're going to have any truth which would rebuke, correct, and then reform us into the shape of Christ and his forgiveness, that this must be something so foundational, so solid, so rock-centered that it can't be moved by our, by our opinions, by our dreams, by our wishes, and that this is ultimately not bad news for us at all. It's bad news for the ego, but it's not bad news for salvation. It's the good news, the great news, that the certainty of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that sign of Jonah that's given once for all to save the nations, also cannot be taken away. And even though initially I may not want to hear it for the awakened life of the Christian that that comes from that regeneration, that, that good news, I never want it to be taken away. I never want it to be lost. I want to cling to it. And to do that, especially in this present evil age, requires the confession of sola scriptura, scripture alone, the source of our norm for our doctrines. It has been a pleasure to talk with you both today, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller and Pastor Brian Flammy from Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado, uh, riff- riffing on. Uh, Francis Pieper's Christian Dogmatics, Volume 1. I think we got through about half a page. I'll tell you, this stuff is gold. And I am looking forward to having you both back on in the future to talk about it again. Thank you for being here. You got Uh, it. So uh, we will catch you next week at Cross Defense, rebooting the show with uh, dogmatics as apologetics, looking at how your doctrine as Lutherans can equip you to stand firm in the darkness of this age and to look with hope toward the age to come because of the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. We will catch you next time. Rock on.